everyone, it is Stephanie Postles, the host of Up Next in Commerce. Before we get into our latest interview with another e-commerce leader, I wanted to let you know that the Up Next in Commerce podcast is now available for sponsorship for the first time ever. By partnering with us, your company will be connected to interviews with the most compelling founders, CEOs, VPs, and digital leaders in the world of commerce today. You have nothing to gain but thousands of followers and millions of impressions each and every month. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Up Next in Commerce. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning at business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm here with Nick Saltarelli, the co-founder of Midday Squares, which is the first functional chocolate bar. You might know them from the company's viral videos on TikTok and Instagram, or just from their delicious chocolate. We're talking millions of views here, though, people. Nick, I'm excited to have you. Welcome to the show. Let's go. I love doing this type of stuff, and I'm excited to uh, deliver fire for the audience. I already know you will. I could already feel it. Right when you got on, I'm like, this is going to be a good one. So with that, we're starting in a completely different way. I want to start with you right now. Your company is being attacked. I want you to tell me what's happening. Tell our listeners what's going on. I started seeing some of the things going on. I was like, okay, this is just wild. So I will let you tell the story of why you're being attacked right now. Yeah. So we have a cyber squatter situation. Okay. So for the record, I dropped the ball on this. Okay. When we first started the company, I registered middaysquares.com. And at that point, I had been such a repeat entrepreneur that I was really like about just being frugal and doing the most with the least. And even though it was like, I don't know, $24.99 for the year for the .ca, I just like, oh, I'm going to just get this after. Like, and to be honest, I, I don't really see the value in the .ca because the way Google works and we had the .com and I just never went and got it. And so when my team was like, how... We, I can't even tell you how many messages we got. How did you not buy the .ca? It was me, everybody. I dropped the ball, okay? I dropped the ball. I get it. It was dumb. That being said, once the company started picking up steam, we had this company that bought middaysquares.ca and came to us and was like, hey, we want to sell it to you for $25,000. And I just don't negotiate with these types of people. My team doesn't. My partners don't. It's like, I told them straight up, you have no business owning middaysquares.ca. 
that would have cost me $24.99. This is super opportunistic. And you're really just taking advantage of the fact that we didn't buy it before you. Blah, 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 blah. We fought back and forth. And, I, and, and the answer was just, no, you're, we're not buying this from you. Mm-hmm. And so they took it up a notch. And so if you go to middaysquares.ca, it forwards to a uh, mail-on-mail adult entertainment site. Um, and basically they did that so that they applied pressure to us. So if people were going to it, they would get a poor experience and reach back out. And we're like, hey, do you want to play ball now? And to the point where we do not negotiate with terrorists <laughs> at midday squares. And the answer is still no. And so we, you know, every single one of the challenges we have at midday squares, we think to ourselves, could this be a great piece of content? And could we go out and get eyeballs around it. And so we turned it into a story. It was hilarious too. <laughs> about how we're getting attacked by cyber squatters. And it's funny, people say all the time, like you guys must make this stuff up. Like do yourself a favor, put yourself in our shoes. Why would we want that level of adult entertainment being forwarded from our customers coming to the site? Like this is not, this is not scripted. This is the truth. Yep, yep. So how long <laughs> have they had this domain and how long has it been forwarding to this adult? foreign website for two years they've been hustling us and wow it's been uh, i want to say five months since the it's been forwarded to the adult website and you can't like do you know who they are nope they do it all completely anonymously and um honestly we're gonna potentially file with like the, the canadian board that looks over urls in canada is actually pretty strict that being said it's a distraction you know what yeah. i'm saying like we don't have energy or time for this. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll get around to it. And for now, we'll continue to go to adult website and we'll continue to make more fun content around it. Yep, yep. I hope that you guys can really like get a lot out of it and it can put you guys on the radar in a good way, in a funny way. And Yeah, exactly. Like, yo, what is, this is Midday Squares. Like, this is one of the million... I can, since we started the company, I can't even tell you how many times we've been attempted to be blackmailed, extorted, uh, sued, threatened to be sued. I mean, it's every three months, there's something that we're fighting. Yep. So, I mean, I, I actually want to talk about this a bit because, I mean, this is something that I haven't gotten to speak about with a lot of founders because I think you guys are just so loud and you're impacting a space that is kind of a monopoly. Like a couple brands have been controlling the chocolate space for a long time. Like, why do you think you're getting attacked so much? I mean, I saw that Hershey came after you and was suing you guys for like using the color orange. And then you guys made a music video making fun of it, which I'm like, that could just probably piss more people off, but like also hilarious. So like, why do you think you're getting attacked so much? And is this cyber squatter conspiracy theory? Is it Hershey? Because they're mad. (laughs) I don't know. Honestly, I think so when it comes to uh, Hershey's, we've since made peace with them. We were on a panel with uh, the the entire team and everything. So I don't think Hershey's has anything to do with the cyber squatting. Okay. That being said, I think naturally when you get into a space that hasn't been poked in a long time and start to do stuff, it makes people feel threatened in any way, shape or form. And the cocoa business in and of itself is very monopolistic. We're talking like across the supply chain all the way up to finished goods. And what sucks the most is 50% of the time, we don't know who we're fighting against. The way the system's kind of set up, especially in the United States is, and even in Canada, to be honest, is you don't really know. We're constantly fighting like battles by proxy. So in Canada, we're constantly being attacked by the CFIA, which is a Canadian uh, trade association that's meant to protect consumers, but yet they allow companies to file complaints against other companies. 
So you could go and make a complaint against your competitor. And then when the CFIA attacks you, they do not disclose who's attacking you. So you never know who's coming at you. Same thing in the US. We got hit with a $300 million attack for an issue on our packaging that we since settled and came out ahead. But you don't know who's coming after you for that. Yes, there's a lawyer and a group in between. Um, and there's just a lot of stuff. Like we, we went to go and try to become part of the Confectioner's Chocolate Association because that creates a protection mechanism. And guess what? We're not allowed in. And guess who's in that organization, right? The people you would think would be in that organization. So it's just, it, it, it's, it's rough. But how we keep on trying to think about it is, is two ways. So when Hershey's came after us for the color orange. Well, first they wanted to acquire you, right? Yes. You guys said no. And then months later, they came after you guys with a lawsuit for using orange, right? You nailed it. We were in acquisition talks with Hershey in a pretty significant way. And during that time, everybody had seen the color orange. I mean, we literally were in a meeting with the product lines and everybody's like, yeah, this is amazing. We love what you guys are doing. And then when we respectfully decline the offer, not because we don't think Hershey's is worthy of being an acquirer of us, is because we have aspirations to grow an incredibly massive chocolate company and we're not, we're not done our mission. Like, it's just, it's not about them. Three months later, we get, you know, a cease and desist that says, if you continue using this color orange, there will be blah, 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 blah. And we'll have serious ramifications from a cost perspective to midday squares. At that point, we had seek legal counsel. There was no real case against us. But the way the system is set up is you're, you're honestly guilty until proven innocent in the corporate side, uh, because you have to spend, for us, it was going to be about estimated up to $4 million to fight our case, even though it was very clear that we were probably going to win the case still have to show up and play this. And for anybody that has recently watched the Pepsi Where's My Jet documentary on Netflix. I watched that. I did. Yeah. So the, the, the legal system is not here to protect businesses in any way, shape or form. I could rant on this topic. There is no winner. Even if you win, you still spend all this money to maybe get back to status quo of where you were before. And it's like, there's no winner ever legal system. I don't trust in it. And you shouldn't. And so for Midday Squares, for us, we, we, how we think about it right now in this like David versus Goliath scenery is very similar to the way I would say Elon's thinking about what he's going through right now is be public. And so that if we get killed, the world knows why we got killed and provide entertainment to a fan base and grow your fan base as big as possible so that when you're fighting, you're not fighting legally, you're fighting through the hearts of a fan base. And for us, that's entertainment. So we've decided that we're never going to lower what we believe is the standards of going in and distracting ourselves to these legal fights. And so we just said, screw it. You know what? This is a great opportunity to market why we believe Midday Squares is not Hershey's, nor do we want to be confused with Hershey's, nor are we trying to be Hershey's. And the best way to do that is to drop a throwback rap video, music video, uh, an ode to the early 90s. And really, the whole premise of the music video is we're midday squares and we're not trying to be anybody else while poking fun at, we won't mention the name again, whoever that is that we're poking fun of in the music video. And it went viral and, and we got a bunch of press from it. And we were actually able to come to an agreement with Hershey's that uh, I think both parties were happy with. And I don't think we would have got there had we had gone the legal route. But by going through the entertainment part of the business, I think 
the last thing anybody that's trying to hurt you wants to see is you get bigger. And so it was in everybody's best interest to make sure that we got quieter. Yep. Yep. I mean, to me, that's why I'm even in media and why I have the company that I do. Because to me, media is probably one of the most powerful pieces for good or for bad. But like you can have a lot more influence over a situation by just raising the awareness of it than trying to hire a lawyer and go to it that way. Like to me, that is, I mean, like I said, now I've seen that is not the right way. Instead of telling people the story and showcasing it in a way where it's like unintended consequences, buddy, if you're going to come after me now, my company is going to only get bigger because I'm going to keep focusing on making hilarious stuff around this stunt that you're pulling. And we're going to continue posting. We're going to make sure that the whole world knows that if we get killed, it is because there are factors larger at play that don't want the average person to win. Yep. If you guys haven't watched Pepsi Where's My Jet, please go watch it. Uh, They talk about this. I think the second lawyer had a great strategy of using the media. Now, I think he went a little too far, but if I was in that position, I would have went the media strategy as well too. Yep, yep, I agree. Okay, so for now, anyone who's like, okay, what is this company? I mean, we kind of touched on it. You know, the first functional chocolate bar, obviously that hints at like healthy and delicious, but for anyone who doesn't know yet, what is Midday Squares? What are the ingredients? Why is this a better for you chocolate bar? Yeah, I think it's really simple. It's funny, uh, whenever we go into pitches, I'm always like, oh, I wish I had something more magical other than like, hey, chocolate bars have been the same literally for 100 years. How could we do something not drastically different, but let's at least innovate on a form factor that's really unique to us, which I think we've succeeded on, which is like this double-decker, hard-to-soft chocolate bar strategy. Let's create a chocolate bar with function. And then the second question we always get is, well, what function? High protein, high in fiber, low in sugar, actually keeps you full. Um, And then let's just use ultra clean ingredients. And me and my wife felt that, you know, there was a way to do chocolate bars in a really meaningful way that was new, fun, different, and marketed in a completely crazy way, which is telling a reality television show basically through social media. And really, the way we like telling everybody is we deliver on delicious chocolate that keeps you full, but we entertain you while you're doing it. So you think about it, if we were like a touring musical band, instead of selling records, we sell chocolate, but we're a crazy entrepreneurs trying to build the next Nestle Hershey's Mars company and do it in front of the public and get them to watch it. So I think we put out a pretty epic product that delivers on our promise. Yep. Yep. I mean, obviously you guys already are, you, you know, have great revenue numbers. You're in a lot of retailers. But at one point, you were turned down by every grocery store, right? Like you went and pitched many of them. They all said no. Now you're in almost all of them that I frequent. Yeah, I would say today, you know, we're national in Target, uh, USA. We're in Whole Foods, Sprouts. We're Wegmans. Uh, we're in all the natural channel across the U.S. Target's our first national player that took us national. So we're in, basically we could service 95% of America through that partnership with uh, Target. And Canada is always a little bit ahead because that's our home base. So we're in every single grocery store in Canada, inclusive of Walmart and, and, and the big ones. And so, yeah, you put it together. I mean, this was, we literally started in our condo in 2018. Like we were in a condo manufacturing this. And the only reason why we're here is because nobody was able to manufacture this thing. Um, nobody was willing to carry the product. When we first went to go to the stores, I think this is like every entrepreneur Everybody told us that we should launch with more than one SKU. 
which is, you know, a flavor. The problems that we were hearing with everybody is if you launch with multiple flavors, it becomes chaotic in managing your scale up process because now you're not focused. And for me, coming from software, I've always been a huge proponent of focus, focus, breaking down really hard problems to small problems and being ultra focused. And so here was the chicken and the egg problem. 99% of grocery stores refuse to list an item that's one SKU. So you're forced on one hand to want to be focused, but that is going to be your Achilles heel when you go and show up to try to sell. So a lot of people go and they'll show up with four SKUs out the gate. I'll tell you right now, if Midday Square started with four SKUs, we wouldn't be here. We would be bankrupt by now. So launching with one SKU was a blessing and a curse. It made it really, really hard. We couldn't get into any grocery store. So we had to literally hit the streets hustling. And we, we created this like online program that we can talk about if you want that really uh, got us front and center to customers and helped us build a fan base. And we brought the customer to our playing field, which they then went to the grocery stores and demanded we were in the store. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, I did want to touch on this because I think it was the digital sample sending out a sample to them right okay what did this look like and not only from after getting a sample and liking it but like how do you actually get a customer to go to a store like if you're to be like hey steph go to target right now and demand me i'd be like hmm, i don't know i have a lot of stuff to do so like how did you get that whole thing to work <laughs> i think this is where we took the facebook strategy of rolling out so how do you roll out really small but make a massive impact in a very small way. So like Facebook started at Harvard, right? Very small, but you could be really big in that area. For us, that was Montreal, where we come from in Canada, uh, which is a big metropolitan city, but still relatively small when it comes to the geography of the city. Like you could do the entire perimeter of Montreal in like an hour, okay? Just to give you an idea of how small the density is, but you have a ton of people that live in Montreal. So we basically said, how do you do things that don't scale? Because that's usually the stuff that helps you get a startup off the ground. And how do we make sure that people are getting interested in that? So we were in our condo and we were literally posting everything on our Instagram as we were making the stuff, as we were going to the stores and we were broadcasting it. And then we went and we said, you know what? We're going to do a sample program for 50 cents. Even though we know that this, this makes no sense to do, but it made sense because we're doing it in Montreal only. And now instead of having to ship it for $14, we can just get in our car and go deliver them ourselves. And on top of that, that's going to create more content that's going to allow us to meet our customers and, and just have fun with it. And so we literally, by 5 a.m., we would do manufacturing, even though we didn't really have customers. We were just building and making stuff, posting it on Instagram. People would get interested in what we were doing because at the end of the day, I don't care what anybody says, you all have a community of people that follow you. For us, it was like 300 people each on our Instagram. But those people were interested in a chocolate bar because we knew who the demographic was, right? It was us. That was why we made this product. And so we would get orders and they would come in at 50 cents. And the reason why we put it at 50 cents was we want to make sure that people were committed to not just getting free product. They had to put a credit card down. And I'm telling you, within three days, this became like viral locally in a really small condensed way because now everybody felt like they were seeing it. We would go make a delivery, then that person would repost it on their gram and people would be like, oh, I know these people. What do you mean they're starting a chocolate company? I gotta try this. And it just got out of control really quickly. And that content kept on getting more out of control because we were being absurd with it. 
Uh, like we would dress up in outfits and costumes for an hour every morning and take Polaroid pictures and write these unique messages to the people we were delivering to. And then these people literally were so interested in what we were doing and loved the product so much. I think this is really important. If you don't have an item that people are going to want to buy on repeat, like none of the marketing you do matters. Because the product slapped so hard, it was so differentiated and people loved it. They were literally going to their mini stores telling, hey, you should carry midday squares. And so we were getting coffee shops, little gyms, big gyms. Like we were getting all of that type of business. And then next thing you know, the buyers follow this grassroots stuff, right? People were even going to the bigger grocery stores that were around and we got listed in those grocery stores. So I think you definitely want to create a pull strategy versus a push strategy. I think that works a lot better when trying to break into CPG, especially. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. When you started with that hyper-local strategy, how did you then, you know, break into the U.S. market? And because I feel like a lot of times you hear stuff, like I hear all the time about companies in Canada, and I'm like, oh, they didn't make it here. That sounds like an awesome product. Why are we so far away? Like, so how did you actually come here and kind of, you know, grow like you did? So it all kind of started really grassroots. It was really controlled. You got to remember, we only launched the U.S. after three years. Even at that, I would say it was too early potentially then, but we took the opportunity when it came. By putting out incredible content and being very controlled in the growth, even within Canada, like when Ontario people were trying to buy, we would allow it to go digitally, but we weren't opening stores right away in Ontario until we really felt we had a grasp of Quebec, which is the province we live in. Then we went to the next place and we kind of did this methodically, but throughout the whole time, you got to remember my brother-in-law and my wife were building this fan base on social media. And when you're building a fan base on social media, you can't control who and when and where is following you. So we had some predominant like athletes and celebrities in Canada that were starting to post about it. And those people clearly had US followings as well too. And then we ended up in some pretty big name hands in the US. And it was really Air One and Sprouts were the two people that gave us our shot in the United States. So for anybody that doesn't know, Air One's like your premier grocer in uh, California that pretty much every single celebrity in the world shops at. And that's important because it starts to get you into the right hands and then people start reposting and all that type of stuff. So I would blame our success in the US on content. Like we're a content first company that's trying to entertain people and making fans before we go out and try to sell. And I think 
that lens has allowed us to be successful because we don't think about our customer acquisition as transactional. Even the ad that we show in markets, we don't show a product ad when we first go into a market. We have this video, it's a Midday Square spite video. It's why we created Midday Squares. And it's really a story about how we want to become the next biggest chocolate company in the world that sits besides the Hershey's, Nestle's, Mars, yada, yada, yada. And so we go out and we build fans to the story before we ever market the product. Right now, the, the United Kingdom is our third largest following base, but we're not going to launch that probably for another three years. But by the time we launch it, we're going to have a built fan base. And that was how the US really worked was we had a minor fan base that has now eclipsed our Canadian fan base. So our US fan base is double the size of the Canadian fan base. Wow. I mean, that's super smart looking at where is our digital fans at and then how can we launch in those locations and keep building before we even bring the product there. It's funny, I've had this now as a theme on the show a couple of times. I had um, Liquid Death come on. Do you know the water in the can? Yeah, of course. Mike Cesario, huge fan. Yeah. Yeah. So we had them on the show. You know, they talked about their marketing. It's just insane marketing. And, you know, that obviously built the company. And then we had another alcohol company come on where they had a reality TV show. And then they basically built this better for you alcohol brand, had it on the reality TV show. And then, of course, it took off. I think it was called Summer House. Maybe that's the reality TV show. Anyways. It's a theme that keeps coming up now with a lot of founders I'm talking to, but I want to hear, how do you measure the media like effectiveness when you're like creating these campaigns? I mean, you guys are doing this like semi-reality TV show. You're all over TikTok. You have like, I think I saw you guys have like almost 100,000 followers on Instagram. Like, you guys have a lot there, but how do you measure like, is it working? And I say this because a lot of, I would say big influencers, you can see that their conversions like aren't there. Like they'll have, you know, millions of followers and then they might have like, I don't know, a hundred people like something. And you're like, that's actually not, and even liking doesn't really matter. Like likes don't matter, (laughs) views don't matter. Like, are they doing the thing that you hope eventually they do? How do you think about this when it comes to, you know, you're building out a media company essentially at the same time as your product company? So the first thing I'll say for the audience is you have to remove yourself from the obsession we've gotten to in that everything needs to be tracked to a click and have attribution attached to it. That is the biggest constraint I see so many founders we speak with is they can't get out of their own way when it comes to measurement, 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 measurement. I think for us, the first hypothesis was, well, who are the most successful CPG companies in the world? Seems that a lot of celebrities are launching CPG companies that are becoming super big fast. And so when you distill that, you're like, well, why is that? They don't overly promote the product. They don't do anything that's like overly about the product. They have an audience that's built into who they are as a platform, what type of level of entertainment that they provide to their audiences. And when you think about how they built those audiences, they definitely didn't build them thinking about how much cans of X will I be able to sell? How much drinks will I be able to sell? How much popcorn will I be able to sell? They built them on how do I deliver the best possible entertainment for my base, whether you're an actor, a singer, a reality television star, how do you entertain primarily and build a relationship? And so for us, that was like hypothesis number one. Why do you already need to be a celebrity to do that? Can you do the inverse? Can you actually celebritize yourself? And this was an idea that my partner Jake brought to the table. Why don't we celebritize ourselves? 
through the storytelling of trying to build this massive audacious goal and in turn build fans. And if we get that viewership and point and are religiously focused on providing entertainment value, knowledge, or any type of thing that's not selling our product, then we should be rewarded. So at the beginning, it was really like, hey, this doesn't really matter what the outcome is as long as we're getting the eyeballs to where we need to and things are happening, good. And so that was, Steph, back to your point, well, why did we sell any? Why did we get to a million dollars of revenue in less than 12 months in Montreal, one city in the entire North America? Because people were watching this show that was happening on Instagram. So for me, that was like anecdotal, but that's enough. Like, I don't need to see more. We had no presence, no distribution. We started telling a story on Instagram. And after a year, we had a million dollars of revenue without paying a single dollar for Instagram or Facebook ads. And so that gave us the courage to continue to invest in this black space of the unknown of what's the ROI of really developing content. Now, if you fast forward to where we are today, I can give you some real numbers because we're big enough. We have data coming through us from retailers. When we launched Target nationally, we launched into the store. We had a month of rollout before we were really focused on letting our audience know about Target. And the second we started making content around what we were doing, but including Target in the conversation, we brought revenue from, it was at about $34,000 a week to $74,000 a week. How did you bring Target into the conversation and still keep it fun and cool? And did Target have to approve your content? Nope. While we were doing our organic content, this is like the key to everything. Your messages will ask, where do I buy this stuff? And so we have a whole team that, let's say we put out a video, i.e. the adult entertainment video about the cyber squatters. If you go look at that video, in the comments, you're going to see people ask, where can I get these? Even though it has nothing to do. So then our team, what we do is we have a strategy when we're launching retailers, when Target's the focus, you go in there and you put Target. And so Target doesn't need to approve the content because we're not doing anything for Target. But at the same time, we'll then commission other influencers to make content around Target that cross-pollinate with ours. Then we'll also take our spite video, which is, if you go into our TikTok, it's the first video you see, it's called the spite video. And we'll recalibrate it to be for target only. And now we'll put it out in an email blast to the audience. We'll do geo-targeting around those locations. And so you see this tremendous lift that happens from content that we're naturally already putting out. So smart, the geo-targeting around like target locations. With content that has nothing to do with Target, but entertains the customer about midday squares. And then they're like, where do I buy these things? And midway through the video, you have Target in the video. You know, it's like, it works like a charm. But the key is entertainment because nobody sticks around in the ad if you're not entertaining them. Yep, I love this. So, okay, what's your favorite platform right now? Because of course, everyone's been talking about TikTok for a long time. And there's also been debate around like, do the users on there convert? It's obviously a younger audience. Like, versus Instagram? Like, what are you seeing right now? Like, what, where's your favorite platform to play on? Yeah, it's, it's TikTok. I mean, that's, it's really just a false narrative, I believe, that is going around. Like, just look at everybody around you. It ain't young people using TikTok. I, I'm a TikTok user, like tremendous TikTok user. I'm 33 years old. 
I spend a disgusting amount of time on the platform every day. My mom spends a disgusting amount of time on the platform every day. Um, so this narrative of like, it doesn't convert is just false. When we ran TikTok, that's the target campaign was exclusive on TikTok. And we saw a ridiculous lift. Now, TikTok is not going to be transactional in e-commerce nature yet, but the amount of persuasion that it has at influencing revenue at retail is massive. And this is, I've had conversations with Walmart head office in Bentonville. They see huge correlations between what's happening on TikTok and in-store sales. But what we don't do is abandon a platform. So across LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube is the only one we haven't given our shot at yet. Ooh, and that one's doing well for us. So I'm yes, like... but it takes, right? It, takes, it took us four months to crack TikTok. Like it took us four months of, we couldn't take the strategy that we had on Instagram and just apply it to TikTok. But we knew we didn't want it to be just a trend-based company. Um, so we needed to figure out how do we tell the Midday Square story on TikTok? And once we nailed that, like you said, we've hit 8 million view videos, 5 million view videos. We consistently hit 400,000 on our videos. Um, and we, we keep growing that platform, but we didn't abandon Instagram. And we don't try to tell the same stories on Instagram that we do on TikTok. And same thing with LinkedIn. Well, I'm like weirded out that you're on LinkedIn. Why are you on LinkedIn? What are you doing on there? <laughs> oh my God. That is the number one we've gotten every buyer in the world through LinkedIn. So we took the Instagram strategy and brought it to LinkedIn. We broke the industry's brain because nobody was putting that content in there. And so now not only do we have fan bases of consumers, but we have fan bases like at Walmart head office, we have fans in there. At Target head office, we have fans. So you mean you're like B2B buyers, we're all from LinkedIn, not like you're B2C ones. That's TikTok, no. Instagram. Okay, got yeah. it. Got it. Okay. And we celebritized ourselves in the industry through LinkedIn. This is good. By putting out this content that hadn't been seen on LinkedIn yet. Oh, that's good. And it, it would stand out so well on that platform, which is just fun thinking about like your content versus everyone else's. But to back up a bit, I want to hear about this. You know, you said you cracked TikTok. Let's hear for everyone who's like, now tell me, Nick, what did you actually do? That took you four months to then figure out how to actually work with TikTok. Yeah. So once we realized that you can copy and storyline is everything. And I came across this one guy that I had been following and I forget his name. But as I was scrolling, um, the algorithm caught my feed. It was a guy that basically said that how many times you post doesn't matter. That's false. And we confirmed that with TikTok. So we're really close with TikTok in uh, the Canadian head office. So how many times you post doesn't make you have a higher likelihood or not of going viral. That being said, it will create familiarity with an audience and help the ability to go viral. But whether you post 40 times a day or one time a day doesn't matter. So that helped us take a minute and breathe. So we were like trying to keep up with content and we're more polished in how we do our edits and that type of stuff. So we like doing copywriting and revisions. Number two was, hey, if you put out a video and you don't see it pick up, cut it right away, take the same video and retweak the first three seconds, retweak whatever you want, essentially, and keep on playing to how you cut your videos. And so now there's two big takeaways for the audience here that changed everything for us. One, we got rid of the pressure of this daily posting. Two, 
we started playing with how we were cutting. We actually tested my face, my wife's face, and my brother-in-law's face. My wife outperforms both of us, like, like by miles. So, okay, great. She's the face of TikTok right now for us. Then how we do the opening cut, how we do the, to the point now where people literally rip off our scripts because you see, once you game the algorithm, it, it really works. Controversial stories work really, really well. And we have so many stories coming that are controversial out of these squares because we're always being attacked or this, this, and that. Origin stories work really, really well. And so once we got the rhythm of our voice and cadence, we just started hitting it. And let me tell you, we post one video every week, sometimes every two weeks. So that completely demystifies the myth of you having to post every single day. The last five videos of virality that all kind of hit back to back to back were all posted within two weeks of each other. Um, so it really was about finding our voice. And now we, believe it or not, the for you algorithm really matters uh, because it's getting to a point where who you follow on TikTok really matters. So the for you page is going to be blasted with content, but because there's so much content being produced now, what are a lot of people are going to the followers page. There's those two sections. So following is getting massive traction. Makes sense. No one wants that inbound of like everything. I mean, it's pretty funny when people sometimes complain about like, oh, I'm getting all this stuff shown to me and I don't like it. I'm like, well, it actually might be what you're looking at. But then now I'm like, no, it maybe just wasn't. But this for you tab is what you're actually looking at. So yeah, or what you're following at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it really is happening. So now it's funny. We've seen TikTok has switched. So it went to a platform of where building an audience didn't matter because it was all really about virality. And now your audience supercharges the algorithm for you. So the second we broke 100,000 followers, we saw our average video view go through the door. My suspect, why I suspect that is because people are actually following the story now. Yep. Now I want to like get into the weeds so people can kind of duplicate this for themselves. Like what are maybe the tips when it comes to the cuts in the first three seconds or how you actually get someone to follow you or like anything where you're like, we discovered a secret on this platform that more people should know about. Yeah. So virality matters for following count. So you have to be a virality chaser until you start getting scale in following. And then once the scale is there, you can start to be a bit more choosy with the content you put out to be more towards your origins of what you want to really show your audience. For us to build an audience, it was all about virality, virality, virality. So a million view video will add 14 to 30,000 people that follow you. Like, wow, that's the best conversion I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, like when we hit virality videos, we get like 30, 40,000 people a shot from the viral videos. So it, it pays to go after the million view viral videos for following. That being said though, we've had other virality when it wasn't about the midday square storyline, it don't work. So if it's not about like your core mission storyline and you get virality and something random that happens to be on your page, don't expect to get the following in there. But if the storyline that you're going viral with is about the thing that you want to continue telling the story about, you're going to get a following because these people are invested in the story. Which that makes sense. I mean, that's how it is on YouTube as well. Like you, I mean, when we target ads on YouTube, we're targeting on a per episode basis. Sometimes like people may not care around this whole show concept, but they care about this one thing or like sticking with that topic that they actually care about. You're dead on. It's, it's about segmenting it and breaking it down. Um, as far as the first three seconds is try everything. 
and really abide to like, we made it a goal of, okay, we want every video to hit 10,000 views. Tweak your style to that. Then once you reach that new equilibrium, now try to get a flow going to get to 40,000 videos. When we went for 50,000 views is when we found our, our sweet spot. Like we, we started breaking our records all the time. Well, I know you said that you have to cut it off if it's not doing well. And so like, how long do you give it? An hour. To see, will it hit 10,000? An hour, okay. Like math. You know right away. So when you start seeing your videos go up like seven views per second, you know that you're starting to hit something, okay? For us, it was about seven to eight views per second is when we know we're starting to hit something. The second hour is the most important of are you going to accelerate even further? So in that second hour, if you're really hitting virality, you're going to start hitting like a thousand views per minute. Uh, sorry, per second, even on that. Like you keep, you keep going up and it's just flying. It's like you just keep adding a significant amount of views. If you're not getting that in the first hour, it, it, it's done, right? Yes, could it go potentially viral randomly in the future? We've seen that happen with like old videos. So, so, but we don't wait for that. If we don't see it hitting, we take it down right away and we rejig it. And we give ourselves three times. So to not get into analysis paralysis, because you can, what we do is if we can't get it to hit in three times, we let go and we move to the next concept. But what we will do is we will go back to a video. Like we, we have a video in our pipeline that we're going to put out that we did four months ago. And we're like, hey, this is good content didn't get the viewage it needed. Let's bring that out of the dead and rejig it. Um, so, so just make sure you're creating forward momentum, right? Like don't, don't stick 10 edits on a video. Give yourself three shots to hit it and move on. And I think that really, really, really helps the cadence. Number two is having part twos are really good at the end. And the reason why is it creates virality into your next video. So the, the swipe up will bring it automatically to the part two. And so what we see is when we hit virality on like a part one or a part two, all of the other five videos that are behind it in Instagram start getting lift. Uh, sorry, in TikTok start getting lift as well too. And they're already uploaded and everything like the part two, three, and four, it's already at the same time uploaded. Yeah. Yeah. There, I mean, you, you don't do it in one shot, but you do it in the cadence that if your part two hits, then they want to see part one, right? Everybody that watches part two is like, where's part one? They, and this is, oh, this is part one. And so we'll see those two part series really, really work. The 8 million and 5.7 million view video that we did are our two part series. Um, and we've brought that into different areas. Uh, what works on TikTok doesn't work on Instagram. So just know that like they are just two entirely different algos. Uh, but we're happy. We've made a choice to prioritize TikTok instead of reels. And we're happy with the engagement we get on reels from the TikTok video with no edits. And then where we're very differentiated on Instagram is our stories. We, it's like live in the moment content every day of what's happening at the office. Yep, I, I love that. I mean, it's an easier way to think about like, if you prioritize TikTok, at least then you can put things on Instagram, but not really the other way around. And I mean, that feels a lot more doable, especially to a first time founder who's like, where do I start? There's so many things and, that I need to show up on. Yeah, and I, I, I you know, I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't do more than one platform until you have one nailed. Like when we started, we were just Instagram. That's it for two years, nothing else. So something that's coming up for me is wondering how you think about like 
being dependent on a platform. And I say this because, you know, when I built up Mission back in 2018, we were originally dependent on Medium. Like that's how our company started and they weren't playing so nice back then and wouldn't really let us have a business on there. And I kind of had a, you know, a harsh look at like, well, we're building our whole company on this one platform who won't, you know, really easily share who we're talking to. Like we don't really know who's behind the curtain. Um, And yeah, it just felt like pretty fragile. And then since then, of course, we moved into different media forms and video and podcasts on lots of platforms. But how do you think about it when you're building up such a big presence on something like TikTok, knowing that they could maybe do what Facebook did and just come in and kind of like rip the carpet out from under you and be like, we're making these changes to the algorithm or this or that, whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, no, that question has comes up a lot, actually, when I even when I like go to schools and stuff like and we're talking about this is I, I can only answer that to what, how we know the business is Midday Squares is a CPG company that once we get in-store trial, it doesn't really matter what's happening after that. The product is so good that it builds in repeat purchase at grocery. So for us, we have the privilege, and I say this as a privilege, that we're agnostic towards what platform is going to be here, not there, because I feel confident at this point in the game that we've already had, like when we started on Instagram, everybody said that the Instagram boat had sailed. Like we were late to that party, crazy late, right? 2007, midway through 2017. Um, And then TikTok comes around and we're like, oh, we just spent all this energy on Instagram and now we got to start at zero. But we just took a step back and we're like, listen, this is not going to meaningfully impact our revenue in any way, shape, or form. Because once we get the customer off the platform um, and actually eating the product, that revenue stays recurrent in the grocery store. So I think church and state is separated for us. So Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn are not beholden to our revenue. And whether they exist or not, people will continue to purchase midday squares in some way, shape, or form, whether it's at the accelerated version that they are now or lesser, at least revenue is coming through the door. And two, being such late bloomers on Instagram gave us the confidence that we don't need to be ahead of the curb on any platform whatsoever. And that's like my advice I would give to anybody listening is you're never late to any party, any party. Um, And you're going to feel that you're late and everybody's going to make you feel like you're late. Um, And so just do your thing, be focused and care about the value that you're going to add to the platform and its end consumer and how that translates to your brand. And I think the rest takes care of itself. Yep. I love that. Well, Nick, that is a perfect, beautiful way to end this episode today. So until I have you back for round two, which we for sure will have to do, where can our listeners learn more about you and Midday Squares? Absolutely. So I always love giving a plug to our podcast, Midday Squares Uncensored. So Midday Squares Uncensored is a round table between myself and my two partners. And you get to be a fly in the wall of the trials and tribulations we are going through in building the business. So it's not an interview style series podcast. It's really about what are the pain points and problems Midday Squares are going through to grow and how could we educate you on what we're going through and have fun with it. So there's a lot of banter. There's a lot of ripping on each other. It's really entertainment and education wrapped into one. So Midday Squares Uncensored on all the podcast platforms, at Midday Squares on Instagram, at Midday Squares on TikTok. Um, And I hope you guys love the content we're putting out. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hey, 
listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.